Imagine That Studios presents Tales from the Archives, Volume 5 The official anthology of the Ministry of Peculiar Occurrences Eliza? Eliza, are you all right? No, not in the least. I left the seat up in our bathroom again, didn't I? What? Confound it. That bachelor lifestyle of mine catching up with me. No, no, no. Well, it is rather annoying when you do that, but that's not why I am upset. Whatever's the matter? The last archive I was reviewing. What? Oh, I meant to take that one on. Now I feel doubly guilty. Oh, stop, Welly. I'm acting absurd. Nonsense. You're homesick. And reading on the adventures of your mentor, Araha Murphy, would naturally kick up fond memories of the beautiful people of your homeland. Well, not everyone back home would be what one would call charming. You mean there are people with rough dispositions in the land of the long white cloud? One would dare say prickly, even. So prickly, they could take your right eye out. Oh my. And that is exactly what Araha was looking into here. Since when did uncheerful dispositions qualify as peculiar occurrences? They do so welly when people wind up dead. The Touch of Hine Nui de Po by Pip Ballantyne Auckland, New Zealand, 1878 The Angel of Death strikes again. The citizens of Howick are once again locked in their homes after the second visit from the so-called Angel of Death. Mr Cornelius Hart is the latest victim of the murder in the quiet suburb. Despite locked doors and windows, Mr. Hart was found this morning by his daughter, dead, on the floor of his home. The terrible condition of the body was just like the others, resembling nothing so much as some strange, ancient mummy that had been left to the predations of the sun. The neighbours of the deceased say they saw a winged figure ascend to the heavens sometime around midnight. The city is awash with rumour and fear, as honest citizens lock themselves in every evening and pray to see morning without a visit from the angel of death. Araha Murphy folded up the newspaper and put it on the table before her with a soft sigh. She had been hoping to investigate this peculiar occurrence in quiet, without the glare of the public's attention. But somehow the newspapers had not been silenced, as was protocol. It had to be the local constabulary's fault, since it wasn't the first time. She spared a glance around the pub and could immediately tell that such a bold headline had caught everyone's attention. It took a lot to shake up the salty and streetwise regulars at the powder keg, but these series of murders had certainly done so. Two sailors were shaking their heads while one read the headline aloud to perhaps his illiterate friends. 
A couple of streetwalkers taking a moment to rest their feet after the long night's work were talking in hushed tones. Perhaps they were surprised that for once they were not the target of a mad killer. Aroha could only imagine what it would be like in the genteel parlours of the city's ladies. Not that she saw very much of those in her line of work. Being an agent of the Ministry of Peculiar Occurrences, in New Zealand at least, took her to many wild and dangerous places, but not so often into high society. That was quite all right by her, and when she visited Auckland, Aroha always made the public house down by the docks her first stop. It was one of the few places where her mixed race and similar mixed attire would not be commented on. Of society. The curling marks tattooed on her chin, the mokokuai, were not unfamiliar that they would not be stared at, as they often were in higher echelons of society. Sailors, travellers, ne'er-do-wells, and even the odd Australian air pirate stopped at the powder keg to fill up on excellent beer and gossip. Yet it was also a place where no one would make unwelcome advances or unwanted introductions. She did not care for such familiarity, used as she was to the back blocks of New Zealand. Cities, with all their milling crowds, were not Miss Murphy's favourite haunts. Aroha raised a hand towards the bar where Mr Braun was talking to a couple of old soldiers, but he was so intent on the conversation that he didn't notice her gesture. Instead, it was his competent wife that bustled over with a jug of ale and a mug to go with it. "'There you are, Miss Murphy,' Julia said, placing it at the customer's elbow without having to be asked. "'Will there be anything else?' Miss Braun was, as always, observant. She might not have the gregarious nature of her German husband, but she was a most excellent listener, which was the second reason Aroha always stopped into the powder keg. Aroha moved her taiha and rucksack from the chair next to her and patted it with the palm of her hand. A moment of your time, and you needn't be so formal either. Remember that I asked you last time to call me Aroha. Sometimes pasting on the social graces was a great trial to her, but at this moment it was genuine enough gesture. The tavern lady raised her eyebrow, glanced around the room to judge the quietness of their establishment, and then settled on a seat. Aroha had never divulged her employment with the Ministry of Peculiar Occurrences, but Julia was astute and familiar with the more covert people of Auckland. She probably suspected Aroha was a private detective of some kind, or perhaps had connections with the Tangatarangi, the hapu of the Ngati Toa that had taken to living and fighting from airships. They were indeed Aroha's family, but only through the father that had abandoned her soon after birth to her Italian mother. If Julia had known more of Maori ways, she would have been able to guess the connection by reading Aroha's tattooed chin. It was lucky for her that most people did not examine her mokokoai closely or with any real knowledge. The agent slid the paper across the table and tapped the headline with one finger. I presume you've heard about this. Do you think this is all some tall tale, or could there be truth in it? Julia didn't even need to glance down at it. She simply shrugged. Ah, oh, there's always some truth in tall tales. The papers are calling it the Angel of Death because some drunk on his way home saw wings. But whispers are that it was 
Hinenuitpo, come to cast judgment on the old bastard. The goddess of death. Aroha sat back in her chair and shared a steady look with Julia. She knew the rumours about Mr. Braun's wife, that she was the great-granddaughter of the first white man to marry a Maori woman. She was also whispered to be friends with the rebels of the Tangatarangi, who had taken to the air. Life on an airship, travelling from town to town, being beholden to no one, had tempted Aroha, especially since her father had a high standing with them. However, she had still to forgive him. Aroha trusted Julia's judgment more than most, so calling Mr. Hart a bastard made as much of an impact as her mention of the goddess of death. The gleam in the tavern lady's eye was one made of kohatu, the black stone of glass that cuts. You knew him then, Aroha asked, softly so that no one in the bar would overhear them. Julia glanced up, locking her green eyes with her patron's brown. I knew of him. His wife used to come in here all battered and bruised, before her death, that is. Her jaw clenched, and it took a moment before she was able to go on. At first I told him to go to the police, file charges, but he was a copper, and that was never going to work. So instead I suggested she leave him, get out, but I guess he got wind of it. No one ever charged him with her murder, though. Aroha had to ask, though she suspected the answer. Julia shook her head and then shrugged. He claimed she'd run off with some other nameless man. But Annie would never have left those two children with him. Never. I hope Hart's murder was as painful as they said it was. Mum! A childish voice rang out from the back room, and a girl of about ten with brown plaited hair that gleamed red in the sun appeared in the doorway with a sheepish look on her face. Julia immediately got to her feet with a sigh. <sighs> what is it now, Eliza? Please don't tell me you've been fighting with those boys again. Her daughter stared at her feet and mumbled, Herbert is stuck in the attic. I think he might have fallen through the rafters just a bit. He was following me and... Julia Braun shook her head and flicked her fingers at her daughter. Go and help him then. I'll fetch the ladder. She turned back to Araha. This girl is always up to something. But I'm lucky. Annie didn't get the chance to enjoy her children's antics. If you want my opinion, if you're looking into Cornelius's murder at all, then perhaps you shouldn't be looking too hard. With that, she bustled off to find what mischief her brood had wrought. Children, Araha thought. The hearts had children, and children had eyes. But no one had reported what they'd seen in the paper. Leaving payment on the table, she gave Samuel Braun a slight wave and exited the powder keg. Outside, Auckland was baking in unseasonable heat, but the city was still bustling. Wharfies were hard at work, swinging down precious cargo off ships from around the world. A few urchins looked to have escaped school, and the sun was gleaming off the harbour. In other words, it was a beautiful day to be investigating a murder. Hitching her taiha and her rucksack over her shoulder, she began to walk to the bus station. Sometimes being an agent of the ministry was glamorous. Sometimes it was just hard slog. Aroha had spent the last year acting as liaison with the Maori tribes, but she had thought that she'd been assigned this case because of another substantial lack of staff.
the New Zealand office of the Ministry of Peculiar Occurrences was very small, and due to the somewhat dangerous conditions they sometimes had, vacancies they couldn't fill. This wouldn't be the first time that Aroha had been asked to step in after a mishap with a colleague. However, after finding out about Hini Nui Topo, she wondered if her superiors had concerns that this might overlap into tribal affairs. The fact that Hart had lived in Howick, one of the fensible settlements, where old soldiers had been given land for their service, might also stray into that territory. The green bus picked her up from Queen Street and she took a seat near the driver. A young, fashionably dressed woman and a workman with his lunch pail on his lap were already on board and gave her the usual strange glances. It shouldn't have bothered Aroha because it happened every single time. It was not just her combination of Maori and Pākehā clothing that drew the curious and the judgmental, but also her face. She wore the heritage of her Italian mother and her Maori father everywhere she went. When she'd been a child, it had been a millstone around her neck, but she had since grown into it. Now it made her sit taller in her seat and stick out her chin defiantly. The moko carved there was her badge of honour. Not everyone was entitled to wear the tattoo. It had to be earned, and by God she had, many times over. So as the bus jerked and rolled its way out of the city, leaving a trail of steam behind it, she endured the stairs with pride. The ministry had taught her being different was also being unique. Sometimes she didn't just investigate the peculiar occurrence. Sometimes she was the peculiar occurrence. By the time they reached Howick, she was the only passenger remaining on the bus. Last stop! the driver said, huffing almost as much as his vehicle. He glanced at Aroha out of the corner of his eye. You sure this is where you want to get off? She glanced out the window at the row of small, whitewashed buildings surrounded by picket fences. Yes, don't worry. I think the natives are friendly. She didn't look back to see what his reaction was, but she hoped it was outrage. The newspaper had not mentioned which house was the hearts, but it was easy enough to pick out because of all the women gathered around it. Cautious not to disturb the flock, Aroha walked slowly up and was able to catch the trailing edge of conversation of the ladies of the neighbourhood. Justice, one was just finishing saying. Yes, definitely justice. She held her fruitcake aloft. Those poor children are finally free. Aroha moved in swiftly and snatched the baked goods from her hands. When the woman whirled around, Aroha smiled brightly. Friend of the family, I'll take this in. And then she turned to walk up the small path to the door. For the umpteenth time that day, she was the recipient of a stunned stare. Yet it was not the place for a good Christian woman to make conversation with a native, even if said native had just stolen her cake. By the time Aroha had knocked on the door, she'd already forgotten the concerns of the neighbours. Maybe they were righteous now, but from the little that Julia had told her, they had not prevented the death of one of their own in their small, tidy community. A little boy answered the door. He was tidily enough dressed, but his eyes were shadowed. But still, when he saw the cake, his face lit up. 
Before Aroha could say anything, though, an older girl of perhaps 17 appeared behind him, her hands going protectively onto his shoulders. Who are you? she demanded, her voice rough with suspicion. Aroha had the feeling that this was a tone she was familiar with. She held out the cake. I'm from the newspaper, and I'm interested in your story about what happened last night. The girl frowned, even as the little boy snatched the cake. You don't look like a reporter. Funny, Araha said with a smile. So many people say that, and here I am. Reaching into her rucksack, she fished out a notepad and a fold of money. Stories pay, though, and I'm guessing that might be what you need right now? The little boy had already pulled a handful of cake and stuffed it into his mouth with the rapidness of the truly hungry. The girl's eyes flickered down to him and then she pulled him back to allow Araha to enter. Inside was surprisingly clean and well kept. Araha would venture that was not because of Cornelius. After sliding her taiha from its place on her back and placing it by the door, she sat down on the rocking chair by the window. Aroha watched the girl retrieve the cake from her brother, cut him a slice and let him sit on the bed to eat it. Aroha held out her hand to the girl. Aroha Murphy. She took it in a firm grasp and gave it a shake. Fell heart, she replied, and suddenly the agent had no doubt that this young woman might have been through pain, but she wasn't going to let it defeat her. Aroha had seen that same look in many of her fellow agents' eyes. It made her feel a little better about pressing the child for details on her father's death. Aroha slipped the fold of money into Pearl's hand, even if it was customary to give payment after services rendered, because she wanted this young woman to know it was going to be all right. So, Aroha said, retrieving a pencil and flipping open the notebook, tell me what you saw last night when your father was killed. Cornelius, Pearl said, folding her hands in front of her. I never called him father because he never was one to us. The girl was so matter-of-fact about it that Araha realised she had stumbled on an excellent witness. She cleared her throat. throat) Uh, Cornelius, then. Can you tell me what happened to him last night? Pearl's gaze narrowed and she glanced over at her brother. We were asleep when it happened. I, I only found him in the morning. The girl was good at deception. Perhaps she had a lifetime to perfect the craft. But the boy's eyes, Aroha noticed, had not left the window in all the time they'd been in the house. The agent got to her feet and went over to examine it. Is this kept locked? she asked, running her finger along the windowsill. Yes, Pearl replied. Cornelius had been a soldier his whole life. He was paranoid about people slitting his throat. The lock was a crude latch, but the little box underneath it was another story. A McTeague alarm. I see your point. This is not a cheap device to have. The girl's eyes darkened. It was the only thing he spent any money on, except booze, that is. Aroha found her magnification spectacles in her rucksack and slipped them on. Under close examination, the alarm had suffered considerable damage. All of the interior was blackened and the gears twisted as if from some heat source. Leaning out the window, she examined the other side of the window frame. At the exact spot parallel to the device was a matching scorch mark. Some sort of excitation device had been used to disable Mr. Hart's alarm. Most definitely not an angel, or Hine Nui to Poe, she said to Pearl, who, 
despite trying to show little interest, had come up to see what the other woman was doing. Angel! Angel! The little boy crowed as a wide smile cracked his, up until then, solemn face. Your brother does have quite the imagination, though, Araha said, turning back to the window frame. It still had one last secret to give up. A series of sharp, thin, parallel scrapes were on the top and both side pieces of wood that held the window in place. Then glancing down at the floor, she noticed a smudge of red dirt directly below the window frame. Frowning, Araha swiftly bent and brushed the strange dirt into a sample bag. Once she had it sealed and tucked in her rucksack, she rubbed her fingers together. It was curiously rough and sharp. Whirling around, Araha replaced her glasses in her rucksack and picked up her taiha. I suppose I should ask about your father's enemies. I am guessing he had quite a few. Pearl let out a snort. <laughs> More than I can list, especially after he came out of prison. When was that? Only uh, about a month ago. He was in for theft. The girl bit her lip as if she were trying to keep back a bitter laugh. Theft of all things. But they let him out and we had to put up with him. Now she stopped suddenly and stared at Aroha. They both knew what she'd just said could be construed as motive for murder. Luckily, the agent was not a policeman and not constrained by the narrowness of their vision. Besides, the evidence had already told her that this girl had not murdered her father, as much as she might have wanted to. Auckland Prison, I take it, she said to Pearl, not missing a beat. Good, I know where to head next. Spinning around on her heel, Aroha went for the door. Pearl's voice, however, made her stop, reminding her that the joy of the chase was not the only thing in this particular situation. There were human casualties apart from the late, not-so-lamented Cornelius Hart. If you find them, whoever they are, Pearl said, drawing her brother in against her, then thank them. Brian thinks they are an angel, and I do too. She tilted her head up defiantly. Aroha wanted to give her the same argument she had last year when confronted by a man using ancient magic to exert revenge from the world, that they were not the people to judge who lives and who dies. However, looking at their faces, shadowed with events they would never be able to forget, even if they could get past them, she found she couldn't make that argument. Instead, Aroha gave them a nod and turned to the door once more. She didn't look back, but she heard Pearl's words hit her like sharp stones just as she turned the doorknob. Oh, and he's not my brother. He's my son. Her jaw tightened, and suddenly Aroha understood. No, her father had not been a father to her. Theme music composed and performed by Alex White. Find out more at thegearheart.com. For more from the Ministry of Peculiar Occurrences, visit ministryofpeculiaroccurrences.com to order Operation Endgame and the Curse of the Silver Pharaoh. This podcast is protected by the Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial Sharealike 3.0 License. 
For more information, visit creativecommons.org. Tales from the Archives. An ImagineNet Studios production. I'm T. Morris. And I'm Philippa Ballantyne. Thank, Thank you, you for, for listening. listening.